Welcome to episode 560 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature regular contributor, fiddle player, educator, chicken coop builder, and our resident historian. Speaking with us from his place in Bucks County, Surf William. We discuss with the surf firewood, wood stove joy, medieval lords and dukes versus crime bosses of today, the joy of random books from the public library, being more spiritual and meditative, Julius Caesar, the resources of the colonized, the secret service, appreciating trees, being preoccupied and being privileged, Israel and Gaza, Benjamin Franklin and Cleopatra, among other things. A grand conversation with Surf William this go-round. We also have an EW poetic piece titled Specks of Linen, and of course, all of this will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 560 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours.
right. Surf William, is that the? It's my main man, you. E.W. Conundrum Demure. Yeah, you mean? That's what I mean. <laughs> Talking to you from where? You at your office? No, no. I, I made it home. I, I made a stop on the way home and gathered up some firewood and brought it home and threw it out back on the on the splitting pile. And um, now I'm home. I'm just home. It's so nice. I'm getting home like at a reasonable hour anymore. That's it's really great. enjoyable. And that, that coming home from the high school that you teach at in Bucks County? Yes. Well, I'm in Bucks County, but the high school's in New Jersey. In Jersey, but you're in Bucks County, PA. Mm-hmm. I cross the border every day. Excellent. Well, you know, it's nice nice to, to have you once again here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, a regular contributor, one of our longest running. He is a fiddle player, an educator, a chicken coop builder, an axe aficionado, among other things, and our resident historian, and as I mentioned, he's talking with us from his place in Bucks County. Are you by the fire? Uh, I am uh, as far away from the fire as I can be right now on the first floor. But I'm, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna cozy up to the fire while we while we talk. Excellent. But I have to turn off my blower unit. I really like saying blower unit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not much has changed since tenth grade. <laughs> yeah, this is the blower unit. It's on, and now. It's off. So the blower unit is off now. So it's quieter. That's great. So you have a, like an insert, a stove insert into your fireplace. Yeah, yeah. It was here when we when we moved into the house and it didn't it looked like it didn't get a whole lot of use recently. So we cleaned it up and um it's great. It's just I know I texted you about the joys of the wood stove. If you're physically able to gather your own firewood and you can go through the whole process of sort of collecting it and harvesting it and bucking and splitting and stacking it's it's really labor intensive um but if you can do it it's really it's really satisfying it's satisfying to be connected to um uh, uh, an aspect of your day-to-day life that, that most of us aren't connected to. Most things in life we are disconnected from, we flip switches a lot to do things. Press buttons. But if you're in a posi- yeah. Right? But if you're in a position where you have to really get into the minutiae and all the details and, and get personally involved, like, right, we used to be a lot more connected to our food sources. We used to be a lot more connected to our energy sources. Um, and, you know, convenience and modern society just took us away from that. So I like this aspect of my life where I'm responsible for heating my house. And it's not just paying the gas bill. It's actually going out and gathering the fuel. Right. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, you know, it's it, it, we. I guess you could argue that we, because of technology, are connected to things and to people in other ways. But what you're talking about is being connected I don't know if analog would be the right way or, the, you know, the more tangible, natural world uh, to be connected to that more so is, is what you value and, and you are uh, advocating. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, think about it. You know, pe- some people are more connected to their food supply. So they're if they're farming, for example, and they're slaughtering their animals and harvesting their grains, um, there's a real obviously that that connection is much greater and you know i guess some people might even say more spiritual 
um, more meditative, but it's just a good thing to kind of reflect on our day-to-day lives because as you and I know, we get really busy and we get caught up with the routine and we're not really connected to a lot of, um, a lot of elements of our survival. And I'm a lot more aware, just I'm aware, much more aware now of trees. I look around, I see trees that are dead. We've had different kinds of infestations. Climate change has meant that, you know, some of our ecosystem is really being radically affected. And you see it in trees, for example. So I have a supply of firewood because I know so many people who have diseased trees on their property that they had to take down or or just just died and fell down, and they want that stuff out of there. So for me, it's a free source of fuel, but I'm forced to think about how I got that and, and how I benefited and how that's problematic for the greater ecosystem. If I wasn't burning firewood, I, I might not think about that as much. I might not be as connected to that. Right, like the, the, the fruit that you use to stoke your fire, literally, is mm-hmm. coming because of uh, a significant environmental problem that our planet faces. And, it, and the fact that you, you're connected to the wood, you are connected to that challenge that we face. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just a question of, well, that resource has become more expensive now. Because of climate change, the supply is limited. You have to pay more money for it. A lot of people in our society don't care about that because they can so they'll say, oh, my coffee's more expensive now. Why is my coffee more expensive? Because of climate change, these coffee farms are not able to harvest what they used to. Their production is down. What does that mean? That means there's less, less coffee on the world market. That means the price goes up. So for people of means, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I used to pay $10 for uh, a pound of coffee, and now I pay $12. You know, I can, I can handle that. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the problem there is, again, we're not connected there's no connection um, yeah right right we're not well we're not connected and we don't know why and even if we do know why maybe we're so well off we don't care or yeah we're so worried about making ends meet that we can't care about the larger problem either we're more concerned about the immediate problem being you know your pocketbook and, and your supplies for your for your life uh so it's either way you look at it it's like uh we're not connected because we're preoccupied or we're privileged. Well, it's the, it's the way, you know, it's, it's the way our, our, this society has evolved and all of the conveniences, which have in a lot of ways, ways made life really much easier than it was, you know, even less than a century ago. Um, the, the, the downside of that convenience is we become more disconnected from nature, right? This isn't a really radical idea, right? I mean, what were the, what were, what the was back the to land, the 60s, back to, right? land back to the land, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Back, back to the land, right? You have friends who moved up to Vermont and I'm sure that was part of their thinking. Like I want to get away from the yeah, the hustle Pe- and the bustle. Peter and Schumann and Elsa Schumann. Yeah. The, uh, namely. And, uh, that's who you're talking about. My friends up in Vermont and, and John Bromberg right here in Northeastern Pennsylvania. They're all yeah, part of that. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. I'm not a farmer, but but I, I, I do a few things around the house. We live in a little patch of woods. So I'm I'm able to do some things that keep me a little bit connected to the land. So that feels good. Right. And I mean, you are um, a hedge fund uh, mogul 
and uh, you um, are also, you know, I think it was Bain. Is it Bain? Isn't that who you work for? Uh, so you buy, you I don't buy, even have, we don't even have, we don't even have any hedges at my house. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, I'm not any of those things. No, but, thankfully um, you you are an educator. But the other, the other element of that is right. You and I are past the half century mark and oh, we're in the downward I'm, spiral. Well, here. that's what they say. And I'm still <laughs> physically able to go out and do the manual labor that is, you know, cutting and splitting and stacking and moving around and hauling and, and all the stuff you do with firewood. And that's that all the benzedrine. That's the benzedrine that you ingest, isn't it? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I, I think I that's what the what beats, I think that's what the beats were like ingesting. <laughs> I, I just know that I'm always really thankful. A, a, a number of years ago when I was in between jobs, I was leaving my my career to go into teaching and there was a sort of there was a period a downtime between finishing my degree and getting certified and getting a teaching job where I was basically unemployed so I worked construction with some friends of mine who have construction businesses and I was 45 at the time and I was working with 23 year old guys and I was side by side with them doing everything they did all day long and at the end of the day I was tired but I was really really grateful I thought and that was only in my 40s then. Now I'm in my 50s. But I could do that stuff. Like I was physically capable of doing that stuff. And it felt really good. And it was a very, again, that was for me a very spiritual thing because I could stop and give thanks that I have a healthy body that allows me to do that stuff. And and I'm, I never take that for granted. No, no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't at all. And uh, by the way, benzedrine is an amphetamine sulfate. Uh, it's a brand name for uh, uh, amphetamine sulfate. Is that is that meth? What is that? Uh, well, it's a, I, I guess it's a precursor. Yeah, I, I don't think. <laughs> in the evolution, yeah, I just want to say you took the conversation in this direction, uh, not I. Well, you know, people washing the dishes up there in Maine that are listening, they're 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 having fun listening to the the seriousness of it. But it's good to make them laugh a little bit while they clean off the plate, you know, and, and go, "Oh, those guys, they're funny." Oh, good, good. I'm to glad all of our friends in Maine, harps well. Yeah, we have a nice station up there in Harpswell, Maine. That uh, that um, regularly every week they play our episodes. So oh, that's great. Well, you're you're yeah. syndicated. You're, you're around yeah. now. You're on oh. stations. Yeah, we are. We're we're in Maine. Yeah. We're in Vermont. We're in New Hampshire. We're in New York, Pennsylvania, um, yeah. Maryland, Virginia, and then out west too. A few places: Washington State, Cali. Yeah, that's it's pretty great. cool. It's pretty cool. We're yeah. Yeah, there's a and and more and more people are are kind of syndicating us because of you, Sir William, because of guests that I have on the program. So I'm, thanks. I'm honored to play even 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 my small and humble part. I'm 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 honored to to be a part of that. Yeah, I'm a fan of your show. I've been back, I've been getting back into my regular listening to like it's just fun. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Now let's not talk too much about us because that'll get boring. Let's let's get on to some of the I other. Mean, I don't want to talk about how great I am because I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a, person. by the way, let me just throw one last thing. I saw an interview with you on YouTube and that was excellent. 
Oh, thank you. I like to hear you on the other end of the interview. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for, for letting me know about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's the humanity. My suggestion for your show is one, one, one episode should be some a good interviewer interviewing you for the show so people can get to know you a little better. But anyway, yeah, there what, it is. What, I'm not that interesting. I'm, you know, I have real low self-esteem. I need <laughs> to put something out every week so that I feel relevant and I, you know, people are listening to me. That's, that's my story. You know, that's what all, that's the story of our story of all artists. That's what all artists do. They just want to be relevant. I'm, uh, thank you for calling me an artist. Now let's, let's get to some of the other things you wanted to talk about. You gave me a list of really cool stuff here. Uh, we already got into Wood Stove Joy. That was one of them. But um, uh, comparing medieval fiefdoms and the mafia was another. Where well, you know, like I love to read. Like I just love – I'm a student of history. I just love reading history. If I, it's my go-to is always biographies or histories or, or, or um, um, great events. And I'm, 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 I'm ensconced now in uh, medieval Germany. So Germany around the, the between the tenth and the twelfth century, right now, uh, and and the rulers and what what good times, me, yeah, yeah, good times. What, but here's what struck me: what you'll find out when I found a great po- podcast called History of the Germans, really, really well done. So I've been addicted to that, and I've been listening to that. And uh, what struck me was this discussion about the the kings and the emperors. And the popes. And then you have the lesser nobility. You've got counts and dukes and lords, right? And we can envision what that looked like. You know, as you go up the ladder, that royal uh, uh, entity has control over more subjects, more, more slaves, more, more serfs, more land. And, and they would talk about these lords and these counts gathering up their, their peasants and turning them into an army and going off and fighting wars for their, for their emperors or for their kings. And it struck me that all they really are, all they really were, were glorified organized crime bosses because there was no democracy. There was no, there was no input from the masses. These people held the power. They had the weapons and they had the violence and they made the poor people do whatever they wanted them to do. And I was thinking to myself, when one lord went to war against another lord because he wanted his land, it was no different than the mafia having a turf war, organized crime having a turf war in some city somewhere where they want to control, for example, the drug trade. We just changed the names. Mm-hmm. So we changed the titles, and it makes things seem rep- reputable and, and, and noble. And, you know, instead of calling these people lords and counts, we, we could call them warlords. Or we could call them crime bosses because that's in effect what they were. And because we change the names, it changes our perception. So if you're in Afghanistan and you control a group of fighters and you control a piece of territory, you're a warlord. Right, you're a warlord. But if right. you, you're a warlord. But if you were a medieval duke who owned a piece of land and controlled a group of fighters, you were a count or you were a lord. Or, or you, or you were a, 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 an emperor, or so. But there was no difference. So the, the 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 leader in Afghanistan, who we now call a warlord or a terrorist, really wasn't isn't doing anything differently than people in Western culture did for centuries, which was gather up a, a group of people to fight for them and exert their will over the population through violence. That's really all they did. How dare you? 
How dare well, you, well, Sir and, and I And this isn't, I very rarely do I have ideas that are like earth shattering, but it just, it, it encourages us to change our perspective just a little bit. Think about the names we use. Think about the paradigms that we automatically, that we automatically place actors into. And I'd say, you know, that stuff just, just obfuscates the real story. I agree. If you're controlling a bunch of people against their will, you're a crime boss. If, yeah, if there's injustice. Right. And, you know, if you talk to people that are in gangs, uh, are involved in organized crime, a lot of folks will say, you know, it's a cultural thing. This is the way we get to make sure we protect each other and we get a piece of the action because the system that is prevalent, the, you know, the, uh, the reigning system doesn't allow us, excludes us, uh, keeps us at bay. Or abuses us, and or. So I'm not saying, I'm not justifying poor behavior, but it it exists all around, right? It's just who's in power, and like you said, they're looked at as being legit or being even honorable or something to look up to, and the others who are not in power doing similar things as those who are, they are looked at as criminals or 'er ne'er-do-wells or what have you. Yeah, and the other thing that happens historically is over time we tend to round the edges. We smooth things over. So if we're talking about somebody like, I don't know, uh, Julius Caesar, and people will talk about Julius Caesar and they'll remember him as a great general and a conqueror of lands and a reformer of Roman society, and yes, the victim of an assassination, which gets to a whole other set of issues. However, Caesar was, by today's standards, uh, a genocidal psychopath. Caesar, Caesar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no other way to there's no other way to say it when uh, a military strongman invades somebody else's land and doesn't just subjugate the the indigenous population, but wholesale slaughters them just to show that he's a tough guy. That's psychopathic behavior. But we don't really, you know, we don't talk much about that when we're thinking of historical figures who committed all kinds of horrible atrocities, but we kind of justify it by saying, well, in those times, you right. know, things were different. People thought differently. And, and fine, you can, you can do some cultural transference like that if you want to, but, but let's call it what it is. I mean, when you invade somebody's country and wholesale slaughter them, that's, that's a war crime. Well, yeah, you know, we, Caesar would have been... Guilty of war crimes. And we look at ourselves in in, when we do that, when we, when we say, well, you know, in those times, we, we're thus saying, well, we're better than them. We've evolved. They weren't as evolved, so how can, we expect, how can we expect so much? I don't even know if that's true. Do you think that's true? Have we evolved so much in, in this day and age? No. Well, no, no. We have more institutions in place that are ideally supposed to safeguard our rights and our, um, uh, uh, our human rights. And our civil rights, but just look look at what's going on in the world all the time, all the time. And I'm not talking about people who live outside the law, outlaws doing things. That's what outlaws do. I'm talking about actual governments that are sanctioned by by the the family of nations. So I'm thinking, of course, now about Israel in Gaza and what's going on there. And I know that's a heated and emotional topic. It really is, but. It really, it really is. But the the larger dynamic here, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and make a statement without condemning any party. I'm just going to say this: 
when the dynamic is a colonizer displacing an indigenous population, you're always going to have the same dynamic. Maybe not always the same outcome, but you're always going to have the indigenous population fighting back as much as they can because they're being oppressed and oppression leads to resistance. So they're fighting back and their ability to fight back is really limited because they don't have the resources of the colonizer. And ultimately they're going to lose, um, but they will fight regardless and they'll do whatever they need to do to win. And then people will turn around and say, well, that's terrorism. Yeah, I know, but you've put people in a position where there's really no other response other than to simply be steamrolled by the colonizing power. So that's how people are going to respond. It doesn't make them innately bad or, or anything. It's what happens when a greater power uh, oppresses uh, an indigenous population. Well, and you're, and you're, and you're, and you're saying it doesn't make them innately bad, but they become bad. If, I mean, I, it's very hard to, to parse these things because you're, you're right. I, uh, oppressors, when they oppress people long enough, those people that are oppressed, you know, long enough and, and brutally enough, they're going to become brutal too. And, um, that's, I guess, human nature, you could say. But it doesn't make what they do justify the brutality that the oppressed uh, do in response to what the brutality the oppressor has, has propagated. But it's, you know, even you go back to indigenous and people have an issue with this. And I don't know history enough, so I have to plead ignorant. Uh, you know, when you say the indigenous uh, people in the context of um, Israel and Gaza, it's the Palestinians you're talking about in Gaza, right? They're indigenous, is what you're saying. That's the premise. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people that s seemingly know or study or are interested in, in what's going on in that region of the world say that that's not necessarily true, that the Palestinians are indigenous to that area. Do, do you have you ever hear that? I'm sure you do. What do you think? Was that accurate? Do you know? Well, I mean, the way I look at it is this way. When you look at the late Ottoman Empire, so you're talking about uh, pre-World War One to post-World War One, the uh, the Jewish population in uh, Palestine slash Israel was, and this is just a fact. This is these are just numbers. People can go look them up if they want. Was about three percent of the total population. So you're saying the Jewish population so it was about three percent. There were there were Jews living there for a long time, but the the, the population of Jewish people in uh, Israel slash Palestine at the beginning of World War One was about 3% of the total population. And now do the, we know what it is? Well, in Israel, it's, it's uh, in Israel proper. There are Palestinians who live in Israel proper. I couldn't tell you the percentage, but it's way more. It's way more Jewish people than Palestinians in Israel. Right. I'm not talking about Gaza and the West Bank. That's a whole other story. Right. But hundreds of thousands of Jewish people moved to the Middle East uh, between the world wars and then after World War Two. And in so doing, displaced hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were already living there and living there for generations. So that's a recipe for unrest. That's a recipe for violence. It's a recipe for resistance. And you're saying that those folks, the Palestinians, were there long enough to be considered indigenous to that area before the, uh, with respect to the Israelis, at least. Well, they were just, they lived there, yeah. right? They lived there. They, for, the for, problem is, the problem is a more complicated, um, 
a more complicated dynamic of property ownership. So the Palestinians lived there for generations without holding the deeds to the lands that they were living on. They were they were kind of like tenant farmers and other people held those held those deeds to that property. So when the idea arose to create a Jewish state, um, all that all that the um, all that the supporters of the Jewish state needed to do to legally own the land was to buy the land from the landowners. Who were the they? The landowners. The landowners were not the people living on the land. Were they Palestinians so, too, or were they Jewish people, or were they? They were. were they were all 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 different all different people. So pal, mostly mostly Arab, mostly Arab, mostly Arab, Arab Palestinian. Um, but again, the larger dynamic here. Just think about it. You've got hundreds of thousands of people living there for generations. Um, but they don't legally own the land. So when it came time to evict them, you could legally evict them. Now, they got nowhere else to go. That's their land. They've lived there for generations. They have farms there. They have homes there. They have a history there. And they were basically evicted. Now, there's a lot more things that happened. There were wars, and the Palestinians had to choose sides, and they chose to side with the Arabs in the Six-Day War, and they picked the losing side, and they lost even more. But even before that happened, the Palestinians were already getting cheated out of land, even land that they had entered into treaties and agreements with that they would keep, they were cheated out of. It sounds, so, like, it sounds like the indigenous people here in uh, I, North America... I think that's a great analogy. And the European, I think, that, I, think I think that analogy people. is absolutely that I think that analogy is absolutely valid. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, I'm not saying that the indigenous people here have the same culture or religion or anything. Uh, they don't. I, I well, religion at least, but they the same the, the same circumstances. The, it sounds like. Yeah, and the the problem with the with the Israeli Palestinian conflict is it's incredibly emotional. And you have the added element of anti-Semitism. So it doesn't matter how opposed to anti-Semitism you are. One of the ways to shut down discussion about this highly complex emotional issue is to accuse anybody who criticizes the Israeli government of being anti-Semitic. That happens all, my response, yeah, all the time. Yeah. Well, my response to that is simply that there are thousands and thousands of Jewish people who are opposed to the policies of the Israeli government, including many, many rabbis, for example, you know, my response to that is, are they anti-Semitic? Because really, most of the things that I use when I critique Israel's foreign policy, I'm really just parroting um, uh, statements made by Peace Now, for example, which is a, uh, an Israeli Jewish peace organization, or rabbis uh, who have united for, for peaceful uh, solutions to the Israel-Palestinian conflict, they say the exact same thing. So I really am not saying anything differently than, right. than thousands and thousands of Jewish people say. Right, right. So I, I get you. That's, I, that's my way of, you know, I, I'm not anti-Semitic, and that's my way of sort of saying, well, I'm not anti-Semitic, because if I am, then so are these rabbis and these other thousands and thousands of Jewish people, because right. I'm just saying they're saying. Right, and, and, and also, you know, when you talk about Palestinians, uh, Hamas does not represent the normal, regular Palestinian person, right? <laughs> Hamas is what did the terrible thing on October 7th. The hor I mean, just horrific thing uh, on yep. October 7th. Hamas did that. Not not the Palestinian people in, in general, right? And they're not... I mean, Hamas kind of lords over Gaza, is my understanding. And the Palestinian people, most of them are just trying to live lives. 
you know, normal. Well, we talked about, we talked, we, it's funny that we started off the conversation talking about uh, warlords who consolidate power and then impose their will on the larger population. And that's kind of what Hamas has done. Right. So, and is know, that your average Palestinian does not want to go to war with anybody. They just want to live their lives, just like everybody else does. Now, is this too bold to say that the what Hamas, the role Hamas plays uh, with regard to the Palestinians in Gaza, Netanyahu and his people play uh, in in Israel with the Jewish people? Well, what do you? I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I understand the question. I don't know that all the folks in in Israel. I mean, all the folks in Israel, as 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 am I, are horrified by what happened on October seventh. But I don't know that all the Israel people, citizens, uh, support Netanyahu and his approach. No, certainly, certainly not, and especially now after uh, after the Hamas attacks on Israel. Um, I think Netanyahu actually lost a lot of support because people felt like Netanyahu, one of Netanyahu's, uh, the pillars of his platform was, you know, I'll protect you. And in fact, the Israeli Defense Force and other civil authorities and the government agencies really were caught flat footed by that attack, which is kind of unbelievable because Mossad, the, the Israeli Secret Service, See, they they have informants everywhere. Like it's that's one of the most efficient. I know one of the most efficient efficient intelligence agencies in the world. They've got informants all through the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They there's nothing that goes on in there that they're not informed about. And yet somehow a major attack was able to be planned and staged without anybody knowing. It's just kind of amazing to me that 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 got that they pulled that off right under the noses of the Mossad who really are one of the people go there to learn how to run their intelligence agency right, because right. that's how good they are. Right. Yeah, pretty amazing. Well, let's shift gears a bit. That's a complicated, intriguing, and important issue. Uh, it, yeah. it, you know, Israel, Gaza, uh, you know, Palestine, and, uh, is, you know, the, the Jewish state, and, and uh, you know, everything connected. It's, it's very, very complicated, and we can go on and on and on. Let's pause Let there. Let me say this before, 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 for everybody. It's really complicated. It's really passionate. It's really heated. But people should still check it out. Yeah. Do some research. Go online. Look things up. You know, and, learn about it. And check your resources. Well, because ultimately I think that history is not that and, and current events are not that complicated. I think they're actually – I'm a bit of a reductionist. But I think they're actually kind of simple. But anyway. Well, simple enough for people to get some sort of handle on it and then maybe, you know, get involved yes. in the conversation, be involved yes, as exactly. an international That's citizen. A, I exactly I I'm a, I'm an, a 100% agreement. All right, cool. Cool. Surf William here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, our resident historian. Uh let's see. How about the joy of random books from the public <laughs> library? That was something you wanted to discuss. It's funny. I just text you when these things pop into my head. I know. So. I know. Well, I was just, uh, I just finished. I, you know, I had time and I stopped in the library on my way home from work and just, it's just so nice to just walk through. See, I'm not, I'm kind of cheap, right? I don't go to bookstores. I don't buy my books. I, I don't see the logic in buying a book because I think once I read them, I very rarely go back and read them again. There's not a lot of books I've read twice. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so I go to the library cause I'm like, why buy it? You can go to the library and you can check it out for free. And when I have time and I've had a little more time, I go to the library and just walk around and it's just so nice to find a book that you 
become ensconced in and just can't wait to pick it up again. And um, I just was ruminating on that as I was reading one of those books. And I said, I couldn't wait to get back to it every day when I, it was over uh, winter break. So I had time and I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and, and sit in front of the wood stove and read my book. And it was just, it's, it's a, it's such a simple pleasure. And, and, you know, I forget it when I get too busy. I forget how nice it is and how enjoyable it is. And I just wanted to share that. And yeah, just the whole idea of a public library is wonderful, isn't it? Phenomenal. Just yeah. I'm, I'm still in awe of public libraries. When my kids were really little, I started taking them to the public library. And I got them both library cards when they were really, really young. And uh, I really hoped that, that that habit would stick with them and it was something they would do in their later. And now my daughter, as you know, is a sophomore in college. At Rutgers. Yeah. At Rutgers, yeah, and she goes to the she goes to the library. She, when she has time, she'll just stop in the library, and I, it's I, I I just I'm glad because it's a really nice. It takes me back to my childhood too, the Scranton Public Library, and they used to have story time there, and they had a little book nook where I had all the kids' books, and I just remember the smells and the and the the, the atmosphere, and it's 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 really enjoyable, and I just was able to do it again, and I wanted to share that that's awesome yeah yeah and the the um the public library idea where does that originate i think that's uh, correct me if i'm wrong i think that's ben franklin that's what i thought too like he did the, he did uh, the firehouses philadelphia ben franklin ben franklin founded the free library of philadelphia i mean he also started the whole idea of fire departments oh yeah oh yeah he was a total socialist <laughs> what a not what a what a great guy he was a commie he was a commie <laughs> pinko on, a, on the $100 bill. That's kind of ironic. Yeah, um, right, right. No, but it's a great, like, what a great idea. And now, and I think these are happening up uh, uh, in northeastern Pennsylvania as well, people have little mini libraries. So they have these little bookcases. They put oh, them in their yard. All over the place, yeah. They put them on corners, street corners. They're in church parking lots. And there's they're little libraries. And it's like, give a, take a book, leave a book. And it's, it's, just wonder, it's just a wonder. You know, because here's the thing. Not necessarily that the books that are in those little community libraries on the street corner are going to be like the greatest books ever, but it's just this idea of sharing these resources and and giving, you know, just leaving something there for free for someone to take. The whole I, the whole idea of it is really it, it it's just sort of reinstills my faith in mankind. It's so nice. It's it, just a nice gesture. Such a pie in the sky socialist hippie. You know, well, surf. yeah, I am. I am. I admit it. <laughs> That's why we love you. And, um, <laughs> you know, when uh, when when we're we're talking about books here, what I'm reading, I'll tell you, too. I've, lately, I've, I've been on a Jack Kerouac kick, not kick. Wow. I've always loved him. But, you know, on the road, I've read a couple of times at least. But I, I bought a bunch of others. I like keeping books. I'm different than you. I like having them on my bookshelf to remember yep. what I what I read. And also to pass on to uh, my progeny and uh, and to pick up and, and just read passages out of books uh, that I've read already. Anyhow, I've been reading uh, Dharma Bums lately, mm -hmm. and that's a great one. And then I have right after that Desolation Angels and Big Sur and uh, Mexico City Blues, all, all Kerouac. And at the same time, I'm reading, uh, you'd like this, folks, I think. It's uh, Girl with Curious Hair by David Foster Wallace. He, he's more, I guess he's better known for Infinite Jest. But man, Girl with Curious Hair is what a wonderful writer. And I'll, I'll be reading David F uh, Foster Wallace, uh, a, a couple of 
pages, a couple of chapters, and then I'll go over when I when I have a lot of time uh, on an afternoon or an evening, and then I'll bounce over and read Jack Kerouac. And uh, seeing the the differences of their styles and also similarities of their themes is pretty neat. Well, you're you're I know you're a writer, and I know you write you write prose, and I know you read a lot of periodicals that have poetry in them and short yeah. story excerpts harper's magazine and the new yorker harper's, yeah. sun your, magazine yep, yep your show is is good for me that's one of the reasons why your show is good for me because you write prose and then you perform it on your show you have contributors to your show who are writers who dr michael pavise yep, yep yeah yeah and and you and you you guys have that you guys have the local theater and you do you do pieces on your show and that stuff's really good for me because I'm stuck in the nonfiction world. I I I just can't get into fiction. I, I haven't read fiction in years and years. And when I do, it's historical fiction. And I know that I should be reading more varied artists, but my time to read is so limited that I just want to absolutely love what I'm reading. And I just love history so much that that's what I want to read. But I just still feel a little pang of guilt or inadequacy <laughs> because it's like i know there's all that great and by the way like the other thing about fiction is i like to read about historical stuff however you learn a lot from fiction sure you so do. you know yeah. i want to maximize my time in terms of like learning new stuff and if i'm reading a book on history i know i'm going to be learning some factual stuff but fiction can do that too you can learn a lot from fiction and great fiction for example when the authors have done their research oftentimes exposes you to whole uh events or personalities that that are historical and you're increasing your you know factual knowledge by reading fiction not right. that you have to do that that that's the goal but i I know There's I need value. more of it, and I like the fact that you expose me to it. I'm I'm, I'm happy to, and and it's very it, you know you are an historian, so it's good that you do what you do, you read what you read. But it it is you know, and in, in the art of a a great writer, to to uh, you know experience characters and storylines, and then have also as part of that uh, historical uh, bits and, and figures and, and events. It, it what an entertainment and and it does compel you sometimes through emotion because of these characters that are are, are fictional how they're dealing with these these te- themes and time periods that didn't indeed exist you know it's it does compel one more so and it it touches you uh, uh, on a, an emotional psychological level while at the same time feeding your intellect and your knowledge well i i could say this that uh, about 4 summers ago maybe 5 I read a, a historical fiction book called Anthony and Cleopatra about Anthony and Cleopatra and Mark Anthony and Cleopatra written by Barbara McCulloch, who was the author of, I think it was Lonesome, Do- Lonesome Dove. Oh, wow. Right. Which, which is a television show. And, and, and anyway, I didn't know what to think of it. I think my mom got it at like a book sale or something for like a dime. Right. Anyway. This book goes into great detail about the historical period between the assassination of Caesar and the Roman Civil War that saw Caesar Augustus Octavian win and become emperor. 
Augustus. That's a really like all Roman history. It's incredibly, it's incredibly um, um, detailed with tons and tons of Roman names that all sound alike. And it gets really confusing when you're studying that history. But this book, because it explored the personalities of these people and and took you inside of their interpersonal relationships and who liked whom and who was fighting with whom and, and why. And it, my, it, it, it was a fiction book. It was a historical fiction book. It enhanced my understanding of that time period. So when I'm teaching in my Latin classes now and I'm teaching the history component about that period in Roman history, I have a much deeper and nuanced understanding of what went on because of a book I read that was actually a book of fiction, but it was historical fiction and it was really well researched. So the the historical part of it was accurate. Absolutely. I mean, the author did a lot of conjecture about like in conversations and things like that and what was said because we don't know that. But it was it was conjecture that was that was enhanced um, and supported by a lot of historical research. So although it was fiction and we can't ever know, you know, what went on behind these closed doors, it was a plausible explanation of people's attitudes and feelings and intentions. And it and even if it wasn't, you still understood the personalities who were you know who were actual historical figures and the relationship to one another um yeah no i consider that one of the best books i read to understand that period of roman history once again the title it's called anthony and cleopatra and the author barbara mcculloch thank you folks there you go if you have nothing to read now surf surf william we only have a couple of minutes before our time is up this go-round. So, uh, I got a lot more to say. Well, we have to wait till the next time. You're always back. You know, you're a regular. Now, let's, let's just uh, see. We were talking about um, comparing medieval fiefdoms and uh, organized crime and medieval lords and warlords and dukes and counts and all that. And then we talked about the joy of random books from the public library. Uh, and we got into what we just finished with basically fiction as compared to nonfiction and historical fiction. How do you want to wrap all this up with, for the folks? You just want to make a profound, insightful statement to leave them with. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm profound. All right. (laughs) I, I would say this. um, I'm sometimes I'm late to the game. I, I really started discovering. I really started discovering the joy of listening to podcasts instead of, uh, yes, I'll say it's sports talk radio because I'm a football fan and I was f- listening to that during the football season and I know it's wrong and I know it's a waste of time, but I do it anyway. Anyway, I've discovered a few podcasts that I'm really, really loving and, uh, I would encourage your listeners to, if they're just kind of looking for something to do with their entertainment time, um, Go explore. There, there's a podcast for everything. It's a, it's amazing. It's almost overwhelming. So this isn't any profound, you know, wisdom. This is pretty mundane and banal um, and prosaic. But it is. Um, go out and explore. Go check out a podcast. They're really, they're really awesome. And I can't believe you get all that for free. You know, you can go find them anywhere, and they don't cost you anything. And they're wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. One of one of the many joys of living in a in a quote unquote free society, right? Yeah, I'm learning. I learn a lot from them, and I just I, I'm a little bit addicted. Now. I'm addicted to the history of the Germans. That's my latest one. Well, the so other thing it. I would say is I try to take a nightly walk. I try to walk for an hour every night. I don't always succeed, but when I do, I listen to your show, 
and I put on the external speaker and your show is about an hour long. So I start your show when I walk out the door and I listen to your show and I should be heading home right towards the end of your show and coming back home again when it's over. So uh, that's what I do. And it's fun. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for the plug. Thank you for your insight, your wisdom, your good humor, your knowledge. And I look forward to talking with you again. It'll probably be springtime when we do. So enjoy the rest of the winter, Surf William. Oh, peace, my brother. Let's and hopefully we talk before then. Yeah, let's get together. All right, I'll let you know. All right, ciao, Fratello. Ciao. Welcome to Miss Kiko's Chichi Club. It's showtime.
specks of linen. Tall, light, and curvy into the ambiance of a four-dimension rectangular box with windows that let stream in natural light from the sun. Dust particles, perhaps specks of linen from her sweatshirt, float in the air through her legs and around such a beautiful backside it makes one tremble inside. The doors open, talk and walking sounds echo. The day continues into the streets and homes and businesses, and we feel alive.
And there you have it, episode 560 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend, Surf William. I also would like to thank these musical artists. Thelonious Monk, The Meters, Tom Waits, Soko, Branford Mar Salas, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself. <laughs>